from the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco. This is Startup School Radio. Welcome to Startup School Radio, live from Wharton's San Francisco campus on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Kat Mignolik, a partner at Y Combinator. At YC, we fund early stage companies and work with them to build billion dollar businesses. Coming up on today's show, I'll speak with Suhail Doshi, the CEO and co-founder of Mixpanel, a San Francisco-based analytics platform for web and mobile apps. They let businesses study consumer behavior. Suhail will talk to us about how he went from having almost no network in the Silicon Valley to building a data analytics firm now valued at $865 million. Every year at YC, we host a conference called Startup School, where amazing founders tell their stories, what they've learned building their companies, the screw-ups, the successes, and everything in between. This show brings founders to you on a weekly basis. We broadcast every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. We're on Twitter at bizradio111, and I tweet under Kat Mignolik. I'm happy to be joined now by Suhail Doshi, the CEO and co-founder of Mixpanel. Suhail started the company with the goal of helping the world learn from its data. Today, more than 3,500 mobile apps and websites use Mixpanel to analyze more than 50 billion actions every single month. Suhail, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, so I wanna go back to the beginning. Um, you know, before Mixpanel, you know, you were in Arizona, and um, how did you go from, you know, kind of not being, you know, based here, having a network in the Silicon Valley, to, you know, you started as an intern at uh, with Max Levchin? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, we started out in Arizona, and uh, before that, though, I interned at a company that Max started um, back in 2008, and so I had just kind of got my early start meeting people in Silicon Valley for the first time. Um, just by working at a startup. And, and you were in college back then. And I was in college back then, yeah. I was probably, that was in between sophomore and junior year of college for me. So you just applied um, to, you know, be an intern, and that's sort of how you, you made your first contacts? Yeah, exactly. So uh, just like most people in college, most engineers in college, you apply to a bunch of companies, and you see who will take you. And I joined Max's startup because they wrote in Python. I didn't know Python at the time. And so I ended up joining his startup. And that was really my first time ever out in Silicon Valley, really out in San Francisco. Um, so that was, I don't, that was a very interesting time for me. Yeah, how did you kind of uh, navigate uh, as being, you know, you were 19 or 20 years old at the yep. time. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, what kind of did you spend your time doing? Was it just really like an incredible learning process? Yeah, so I had this theory in my head. I thought to myself, there's this phrase that summer, this, this, there's this phrase that um, you should work smarter, not harder. So I was kind of curious about testing that, that, that phrase. So what I thought was, I wonder if that's true. So what I decided to do at Slide was to just work as hard as possible and to see if it mattered. So I wanted to just test the theory that if I just worked uh, all the time, would it work? Would it would I see the value, what I was slide this meritocracy at the end of the day. And so what I ended up doing is I went to slide and I didn't really have anything else to do because I was out in Berkeley right. and didn't have a car and um, I didn't really know anybody. So all I really could do was work anyway. 
So I take the BART into San Francisco and I pretty much show up at around 10 and I pretty much wouldn't leave until 12. Um, and then occasionally I would take a taxi back home or something like that if it was past 12. Um, so what did you find from, from just basically working constantly? Yeah, so I was really interested in learning, so it didn't bother me too much. Like I enjoyed programming. I, you know, I grew up programming for fun, so it wasn't really a hard job for me. Um, but what I learned at Slide was that people started to take notice mm -hmm. that if I worked really hard, and I probably also had to be pretty, had to be reasonably smart. I couldn't just work hard and not get very much done. That if I combined those two things together, that people started to take notice. And there was this one moment where I remember Slide had. You know, they have an all hands meeting and all hands is just when a bunch of employees, the whole max, the CEO of the company or really important people in the company will get up and tell the company, everyone in the company, what's going on. And I remember that Max pointed out a product that I was working on and he said, hey, you know, Suhail and Adora, they're working on this product. And the whole company like looked back at us. And it was really weird because I was just an intern. Right. Um, I wasn't hadn't been there for very long. And it was very cool to be acknowledged in that way. That is awesome. So so you kind of figured out that it wasn't necessarily all about working smarter. You you also have to put in your time. Right. Yep. You do have to put in your time. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so you do have to put in your time. But you also I also learned at Slide that you have to also be putting in your time on the right projects. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes if you don't work on the right projects um, or if you're not working on the right things, that effort can be very wasted. And so... But I did learn that if I could sort of combine both, that people would notice people, that would matter. And that was probably how I made my first connection to Max ever. So when you're an intern at a company, how do you decide? And it's, it's probably one of your first times working in that environment. Like, how do you decide what are the best pro you know, projects to work on? Well, when you're an intern, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> yeah. you, probably just, you get placed on some project. It's kind of random, not random. You just get set on some projects. And you hope that it works. And the first project that I was on at Slide, um, I wasn't super in love with the team that I was on. Um, it wasn't jiving exactly the right way. And then the second project that I was put on when I moved to a team, even during that internship, um, I started to thrive in a project that was basically going nowhere. So I was actually put on a worse project, but I liked the autonomy and I liked the people that I was working with so much that I was. it was really very interesting to be able to drive that number from almost zero to something very interesting. Um, so even at Slide, at those at those two points, I had learned how important working with the right team was as well. So while you were at Slide, what kind of interaction did you have with Max, and and did you learn anything from him that you took you know with you uh, when you left and when you started Mixpanel? So. It was kind of weird because I didn't expect this interaction with Max. I didn't expect to have any interaction with Max, actually. Um, I just remember being pretty scared or being pretty intimidated, being like, this guy started PayPal, oh boy. Um, and I'm just this lowly intern in his company. But um, it was kind of weird because eventually, and I still haven't figured out why Max cared, but eventually Max would take, he would take somewhat of an interest in our project. And maybe it was because there were fewer people involved in our project, so he felt like he could kind of get involved without stepping on too many people's toes. I recognize that now as a CEO. But um, but it also was interesting because we would try to pitch Max our ideas. Um, and that was pretty cool because mm -hmm. that was the first time where I could just sit in a room and Max was on the other side and I could pitch him an idea about this product that I was working on and I could get his feedback or get his input. It was kind of interesting because it was kind of like, it, was, it kind of prepared me to have to pitch to people later on because I got this chance to pitch this person 
that was very well known in Silicon Valley and just say, hey, do you think my dopey idea is any good? You had to get over like fear really quickly. Right. Yeah. And, and then eventually we got to a point where it was okay for me to disagree with Max and you have to be comfortable with that. Yeah. You have to eventually become comfortable with that. Is that an, was that an awkward process at first or how? Yeah, how... it was very awkward. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was super awkward. But but I also got really comfortable with being rejected for Max, too. There you go. So I got really comfortable with rejection and being like, OK, well, Max doesn't think that's a very good idea. All right. So let's think of something better. So moving forward a little bit, where did the idea for Mixpanel come from? So it came from that internship as well, um, strangely. Uh, so that's. At Max's company, they were very notorious in Silicon Valley in around 2008 for doing really very, very sophisticated, very advanced, deep analysis on how people were using their products. Mm -hmm. They did kind of weird things like they would take their slideshow widget and they would shave. I remember someone telling me a story about how they would shave pixels off the bottom of the slideshow just to figure out how to increase the conversion rates just to find that optimal conversion rate of people wow. sharing that slideshow. So just really weird things like that. I had learned about viral coefficient for the first time. I learned about funnels for the first time. I learned about uh, retention, which they called class curves over there. And these were all very new, very unique concepts in 2008. Most people hadn't heard of most of these things. So I just remember sitting in a coffee shop and I remember a PM at Slide teaching me how to calculate viral coefficient, which Viral coefficient is just this equation that helps you determine how viral your app is or isn't mm -hmm. and how close you are to making it viral. And just being able to see the math behind how to make, how to determine objectively whether your products were good or not just blew me away. Um, so at Slide, when I left, I had thought that it was a bit silly that both Slide and all of its competitors in the world were building these tools in-house. That seemed very strange. Why were they building internal tools when there are clearly other analytics companies in the world? And so when we, when I thought about that, I thought it was odd. There seemed to be a gap in the world. It wasn't clear whether that whether the product that they were building internally was large, widely applicable, but it just seemed like such a rational, logical thing. Like, wouldn't you want to know how people are using your products? Wouldn't you want to use the best metrics to figure out whether you whether your products are objectively good or not? And that's what I took away from Slide. So it was the fact that they were doing it, all their competitors were doing it. And I thought, why are they all building it? What if we just built it and then they just paid us? Right. So all of these, you know, larger companies were building these internal teams to right. build, you know, the software in-house, to build these analytics in-house. And, and you decided, why don't we just do it and, and sell to all of them? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it just seemed silly because, you know, Slide had about eight to 10 people doing data analysis for them full time. And then they had a bunch of infrastructure, lots of servers, and then they, you know, MySQL servers, things like that. And, and so it just seemed odd to me that, you know, you calculate all of that in and you're going, wow, Slide's spending like a million dollars a year just to do this thing. If I could like do this for them at half the price, maybe they would pay that. Right. So, so you go back to Arizona and do you uh, pitch this to your co-founder or how, how, does this, how did you meet and decide to work with your co-founder? Right. So, uh, so Tim is my co-founder and Tim and I met, we first met in, Tim, Tim was a computer science major and I was a computer systems engineering major. And we both met in a discrete, in this class called, well, it's, it's a discrete math class. Mm -hmm. um, so we learned discrete math together and he was in that class. And the way that I learned Tim was very strange. The, the way that I met him was somewhat strange in that um, there are all these other people that were that knew how to program in this discrete math class. So I thought to myself one day, 
you know, it seems like we should all like get together and maybe write code and like maybe build something together. Wouldn't it be better uh, for us to do work on something together versus everyone kind of working on like math puzzles or something right. like that? Um, and so, you know, I kind of gathered these people up in the class and I said, hey, you know, do you guys want to work on something together? And everyone was kind of like, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting. Maybe kind of shrugged their shoulders. Mm -hmm. Tim was the only person that was like, when and where do you want to meet? And I thought that was really cool. And so um, that's that was first how Tim and I met. But eventually we just grabbed lunch together. And I had already started Mixpanel, um, sort of. It was kind of a project. It was, you know, you're working on something during school. So right. you're only able to so make so much So it was a side project. Or, or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like a side project during school. Um, and so eventually Tim and I just had lunch together. And he just became very interested. And... The problem with the, the interesting thing here is that um, I didn't immediately just say, Tim, come join. Right. And part of the reason why was that I had tried to build a company after Slide before, but before Mixpanel, right in between for like two or three months. And I just wasn't passionate about that company or what I was building. But I had also realized that it was really hard to find a co-founder, that I had found every time I found a co-founder or someone that was kind of interested in what I was building, they were interested for about half a second, and then they'd be totally out. Right. Um, whether that be because they wanted to go snowboarding or because there was some piece of work that they they had done, but it wasn't necessarily going to be used completely yet because we had switched switched ideas or something. So they didn't have the same level of, commi of commitment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it, just, it felt very uh, temporary and short term. And so by the time uh, I was doing Mixpanel and I had met Tim, I kind of had just... I kind of had just written it off. I kind of just yeah. said, well, I, I want to do something. I'll just do it by myself for a little while. And, you know, maybe I'll build something and someone will be interested in, in it. And that's exactly what happened. Tim became very interested and I hadn't been working on it for very long. So uh, he, you kind of just told him the idea and he was like, that sounds cool. I'll get behind that. Yeah. I, I, well, I think it was, it was kind of just, what are you working on? Mm -hmm. I, and I told him, hey, I'm working on this analytics thing. And he said, oh, that's kind of cool. And then, and then, you know, I'd say, hey, you know, if you want to come by, I work in this computer lab uh, every, you know, pretty much every evening. Um, and Tim was with me there pretty much every evening, Friday nights in college. Like we're both nerding out. <laughs> That's the awesome. Um, and we're staying there till like 12 and we get dinner together. It's college. So you stay up later. And uh, and that's when he became more interested. And so I said, great. Well, you know, if you go build this thing, um, then you can join. And, and that was really just my way of like saying, okay, I already gone. I already felt like I had met two people and they didn't really show the right level of commitment very early on. They never really built anything. They just, it was an, it was cool for them for a week. And then they were kind of like, I've got other things to do now. So you're 20 years old at this point, starting Mixpanel with your co-founder. Maybe 19. 19. And so how, no, maybe we're 20. I don't remember. <laughs> and so how, at what point did you decide, let's move to Silicon Valley? Yeah. Uh, so Tim joins and then we, have this idea of, well, maybe we should apply to Y Combinator. Um, we had read Hacker News, and so that's how we learned about Y Combinator. And we thought, you know, let's just put an app in. We actually weren't really sure whether we wanted to do it or not because mm -hmm. we didn't know that much about Y Combinator at that time. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of, like, as many resources online today as, as like, or back then as exists today, right. certainly. Exactly. And so we thought, okay, let's apply and Let's fill out this application. Filling out the application would be healthy because maybe that'll help us understand our own business. And so we applied and kind of assumed that we probably wouldn't get in. And, you know, that was the first app where you had to, like, take a video of yourself. 
which was very awkward. <laughs> yes. Um, and we were very adamant about it being 50 seconds instead of 60 seconds, um, just to be under the under the minute bar. Um, Concise is the best. Right. We figured, we figured that was important. And so we sent our app in and we're kind of like, okay, back to work. Um, and so, you know, long story short, we were able to get into Y Combinator and that's what, that was that summer. And so we had two options. We could go intern at a company. If we didn't get in, we're like, okay, well, we'll go intern somewhere. Or if Y Combinator accepts us, maybe that's, maybe that shows that we have a reasonable idea and we would just go do that for the summer and see where we get. Yeah. And see what happens. So it's kind of an experiment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what, if, can you paint the picture of like, what was it like back then? Um, like what did Google Analytics with like kind of the other people who are in the space now? Like were there other, you know, big analytics players? Yes. Well, it's interesting because when we started Mixpanel, we, I wouldn't say that we like put together this very complex business plan and did like all this market research to determine what the competition looked like and what, what we could do. But there was something that was important to us, which was that um, when we started Mixpanel early on, we made this decision very early on that was let's not track page views. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because we felt that there were all these companies that already did this and Google Analytics was pretty good. They're still pretty good at it. Yeah. And and we thought to ourselves, what extra value could we really add to the world if we track page views? And this was somewhat risky at the time because it was very odd to build an analytics company that did not track page views. Right. It was super strange. If you're just joining us, I'm Kat Minialik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with Suhail Doshi, the CEO and co-founder of Mixpanel. We're talking about how you know that he decided, how he kind of thought about the competition at when they first started, and how he decided not to track page views. So, so what is it? You know, so at the time, did you get pushback from your first users, or um, did you say like, hey, like we're going to you know add much more value with with these like other you know elements that we're tracking? What was kind of the thought process in building that first version of the product? Right. We, we thought to ourselves, well, if we can't add any extra value because we track page views more so than something like Google Analytics, then we ought to do something else. And if we can't figure out what that something else is, well, it didn't have legs anyway and we deserve to die as a company. <laughs> right. So it was kind of a harsh view of the world in terms of what we thought we should do. And, and so what we decided then was we were like, okay, well, you know, with the advent of Ajax and Web 2.0, Websites are becoming, they're becoming less page to page based. It's not really like geo, if you kind of can imagine this, like it's not really like GeoCities where you're just clicking on these blue, bright blue links and you're going to the next page anymore. It's actually more like you're going to Pandora and you're playing a song, but you're still, you're, there was no page load. Right. Or you're on Facebook and you're clicking through photos, but you're not loading a new page, just taking you to the next photo. So we thought that was kind of, we thought that that was the future. We said, that the way people are going to build things on in the browser, it's going to be more rich. This is very obvious in 2016. Right? Yeah, that, yeah. Like, you wouldn't expect anyone building a product any other way. Um, but this is when Web 2.0 basically happened. Um, and so we thought to ourselves, well, if you can't, if you're not going page to page, then how are we going to measure all these things that people are doing? Well, and then we thought to ourselves, well, the right unit of measurement then is probably an action, an event something that's happening on that page and so we thought well let's just track engagement instead let's mm -hmm. track the actions that people take and let's make it really easy to track those actions because those actions are probably more interesting than someone just going to a page in fact those metrics are better and 
oh, by the way, we saw companies like Slide benefit from being able to track engagement. So it was somewhat twofold. It was saying, if we can't figure it out and we can't get people to do this, then we deserve to die and we'll figure out something else. But if this does work, which we think it could work, this is somewhat logical. Let's just do this. So how did you go about getting your very first customer? Oh, yeah, that was that's somewhat of a weird story, too, because the way we got our first customers was because because I I built a bunch of apps on Facebook or there's this thing called open social that no one remembers anymore um, that was started by Google. It was kind of like the competitor to Facebook's app platform at the time. Yeah. And um, because I had built all these things, I had built this network of people that were also building apps and we would just talk about the apps that we were building. And so a lot of our fir- some of our first customers just came from those people because I went to these app developers who were much smaller than Slide yeah, and Slide's competitors. And I said, hey, look, you don't have the bandwidth to build an internal analytics. Uh, you don't have time to build internal analytics software in your company. So what if I just do it for you and you can just pay me? instead and i'll just give you insight so our first customer actually our first customer paid us like 150 dollars a month but we didn't have a ui oh wow there was no product actually so what i did was i just gave him a piece of javascript and said here's how you integrate this product there's no docs there's no ui there's nothing i said here's how you do it and what i'll do is i'll just tell you interesting things about your data. So you were just manually reporting. Yeah, it was kind of like consulting, but I knew that I wasn't going to consult forever. I knew that I was going to consult for like a month. And so I said, hey, look, if you just, I'll pay, you pay me 150 bucks. He paid through PayPal. We didn't have, there was no Stripe at this time either. So you had to really build your own billing system. So that meant that we would just use PayPal and he would just pay the subscription bill. And then I would ping him on IM through Gchat and I would just say every day I would just give him something new that I learned and I would query the data myself. And prior to you, were they just sort of in a, in a vacuum? Like they, they didn't have any of this information? They probably just used something like Google Analytics. But yeah. yeah, they largely lived in a vacuum. They weren't really sure what was going on. And so there'd be days where I'd say, hey, your metrics are really down. And they'd go, oh, thanks for letting us know. We found a bug. And they didn't know that that bug was causing all their metrics to to fall down. And And at this time... Uh, and, and even still today, Google Analytics doesn't really give you, doesn't let you do instant analysis. You, mm-hmm. don't, get, you don't, don't get to see a real-time view of what's going on. So for them, they would have to wait a day and then they'd find the bug. Whereas I was able to say, you have a bug now. And they go, and they were like, okay, great, we'll fix that. And they found the bug and they fixed it. So, so at that time, it was just us chatting and I get paid 150 bucks. Our servers were $60 a month. So as far I as I was concerned, it. we were profitable. <laughs> yeah. So so how long did you go you know through this kind of like unscalable manual process that I'm sure you were learning a lot from yep. um, but at what point did, were you able to like automate yourself out of that system Yeah so I, I was just I w- while I was just kind of finding insights for him I was building the actual product mm-hmm. and so I just told him hey look we'll have a product that you can log into in about a month or so and so um, January 2009 was when January 1st, 2009 is when we launched the first product that you could actually go log into and then see your data. And so as soon as that happened, I thought to myself, well, clearly this person will pay more money if he's willing to pay me to just like ping him on IM. Mm -hmm. So then we translated $150 a month into $500 a month. Um, And so then we were like, wow, now we're now we're really running pretty profitably. Yeah. So so you had that first customer and then how did did the rest of the world hear about you? or at least the rest of your early, like first 10? Yeah, first 10. So um, the next thing that we did after that was, so we, we pinged more app developers just like him, invited them into the product. 
So we maybe got like maybe our first five or so came from that, just from our network. And then after that, um, were these usually you know one man shops or or were they like teams of maybe like five or ten? They were or? usually just like two to four people. Okay. Yeah, they weren't very big companies. They were super small startups. And so what we ended up doing afterwards is we thought, okay, well, how do we get more people that buy into this idea of tracking engagement versus tracking page views? Because if we just tried to go after everyone that cared about page views, then our product was definitely going to turn into something like that. So we had to really think through like, well, there's a set of the world that believes in what we're building. And there's a set of the world that doesn't yet understand it that we're going to have to educate in the long term. We're still doing this today. Um, so many years later, we're still educating the market. And... Um, so what ended up happening was uh, there's this guy named Eric Reese, and so a lot of people know Eric Reese as the guy that's kind of came up with the word lean startup, right? And he sort of gave us gave the world this idea of how you can build your companies and build software in a faster way than the normal waterfall model, which typically takes a long a lot longer. And so Eric popularized this, and we bought into that. Um, Tim and I felt like that was he. This was before there was a book; it was just a bunch of blog posts on Eric's Eric's blog. So what we started to do was we built a Twitter bot. So what we did was we built, I wrote some Python and I made a Twitter bot. And I just basically followed everybody that was following Eric. Because Eric really Eric really vocalized this idea of vanity metrics that you shouldn't be tracking. Right. And so we knew that people that were following Eric bought into this idea. So this is before Twitter had a lot of restrictions. And so we just built a Python bot and we just followed everyone. That's followed clever. every single person that Eric, Eric that was following Eric. And then those people in turn found out about Mixpanel. And so um, we probably got like another 100 users just from that. That's pretty incredible. So I've been speaking with the CEO and co-founder of Mixpanel, Suhail Doshi. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Suhail about, you know, starting Mixpanel, joining Y Combinator, and, you know, how they grew from there. I'm Kat Manialik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio on business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Startup School Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Startup School Radio on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Kat Mignolik, a partner at Y Combinator. For those of you just joining us, I've been speaking with the CEO and co-founder of Mixpanel, Suhail Doshi. Um, we were just talking about how he got his very first users um, and then, you know, his first, you know, 10 more, 100 more. And by building a Twitter bot and following everyone that followed Eric Reese, which, which was a, a clever hack. Um, and I'm happy to welcome Suhail back now. Thanks. And so I kind of wanted to to talk about so at this point um you know you're you've built the first version of your product you're starting to get your first users um are you in yc at this point uh so maybe i'm not sure that i remember it's kind of a blur um i think so yes i think well, so is there any advice you got uh during yc that stuck with you and continues to kind of inform the way you think about building your company oh i have to think about that um yeah, I think there's there's one piece of advice that I think Paul gave us uh, and gave our batch really that I think really stuck with us um, that I I know resonated with us, which was that Paul did this thing where he like drew this this triangle on the board, but it, you can imagine a triangle, but it being upside down, so maybe a trough, and 
what he did was he just basically said, look, the first thing that you should be trying to do is you should be trying to make a product that is not, you're not trying to make a product for everyone. You're trying to make a product that just makes a few very narrow set of people really, really happy. And if you can make a very small set of people happy, then you can kind of broaden out um, the number of people that you make happy. Mm-hmm. And so, so just focus on those passionate people that care about your products. And that's exactly what we did. We sort of just said, okay, we're going to take all the people that buy into tracking engagement, tracking actions, the people that understand that tracking page views is lame and it's not the right metric. And we're going to make those people as happy as possible. And then we're going to continue to find ways to get more and more people. Um, what were ways that you did that really early on with those first, you know, hundred people who wanted to track engagement? Like what were ways that you went out of your way to make them happy and make them love Mixpanel? Um, so first I just started at, we didn't have very many customers. So the simplest thing I could do is just add them all to my IM list and then just ping them every day and just say, how's everything going? How are you? How's business? Did that sort of surprise people? I think that I think that they didn't expect me to just add them and start talking to them. Yeah. Um, but I think they weren't, uh, I don't think they were put off by it. I think they were just like, oh, okay. Um, and so then eventually you kind of break them in and then you can get really, really candid feedback. And then eventually they would start chatting with me. They'd start pinging me and saying, hey, this thing is broken. This thing doesn't work. Um, your site's not loading for some reason. So one of our first customers was this company called Jam Legend. It was basically just Guitar Hero, but on your desktop. Mm-hmm. You I remember your, that. And you use your keyboard as the thing that you'd play, you'd use as the guitar. And so Jam Legend was one of the first customers that had enough users that took out our site. Um, and they sent enough data where eventually one of the founders got on IM and just said, hey, your site's not loading for me. And so we were like, okay. We looked at, we went to you know his his data to make sure that it was loading. And it wasn't, and so he was just getting this error. And so that was the first time where we had to look at our our product and go, it doesn't scale. Mm-hmm. Oh no, this isn't working anymore. And so um, we just spent a lot of time with customers just trying to find exactly what they wanted in order to fix those problems that they had. And so you, you kind of went about fixing them before kind of opening the funnel to even more. At what point did you kind of, did you feel comfortable with the product that you were willing to bring on a wider kind of audience of people? We were never really that afraid of bringing on a wider array of people, in part because it's so hard to get them anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So the way we thought about this is we just said, you know, I had built projects before and I, I, I had learned that it just takes time um, to get a bunch of people to learn about you and use you and talk about you. So we weren't really particularly afraid that we were just going to get bombarded with tons of users. I think that's um, I think that's wishful thinking. So early on, we we always had a product January 1st. We had, you could sign up for Mixpanel. Anyone could sign up. Anyone could send us data. And the reason why we did that was because we knew it was going to take time. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to build that word of mouth. We wanted to build the awareness. We wanted to build that incremental awareness as fast as possible, as soon as possible. Um, you talked earlier about um, how you, you know, had to in- basically educate the market, educate yep. people that, you know, page view tracking doesn't make sense. You know, tracking engagement is much more powerful. So, and you say you, you kind of have to do that today. So what kind of, uh, you still have to do that. And so what kind of things did you do early on to help people understand, you know, that tracking engagement uh, and actions was, was the way to go? Right. So uh, there are a lot of, there are a bunch of people that were popularizing, popularizing this idea that you shouldn't track vanity metrics like 
downloads and installs and page views were amongst that. Things like that. Number of users that have ever signed up for your service. You yeah. Know, LinkedIn does that, for example. They just say, here, we have 300 million registered users. And they're like, great. How many active? Yeah, how, how many, many active? Yeah. That's like an obvious thing that people ask now. So one of our first steps was was kind of riding that wave. And, and, and a lot of people kind of helped us inadvertently. So we didn't have to do a whole lot there. But then when we wanted to start being more proactive about it, one, one tactic that we started to use was, was that we started to educate journalists. Oh, interesting. That was very key. So we did two things. One was we educated journalists, and two was we educated, we educated VCs and, and investors. Because we knew that if we educated both of these two parties, that they would ask founders and entrepreneurs, what are the metric? What are your actual metrics? Because we don't believe in these other ones. So, um, you know, for example, one person that uh, published something was Liz Gaines when she was working at All Things D. And in conjunction with me and Mark, we just called out. We said, companies should stop tracking bullshit metrics. And we came out together and said that. And so we started educating all these journalists over time and saying, hey, you wrote something about how LinkedIn has registered users. That's kind of silly. Like, doesn't it matter how many actives they have? And this is such a logical thing to people that it's not particularly difficult to, to get sell them on that idea. Yeah, yeah. they're like, yeah, that you're right. Sense. Why are people, yeah, people maybe not may not come back. Who right. cares? And so we did that, and then we educated investors. We tried to make sure that, and, and investors liked this because um, they liked it because they already kind of they were savvy enough to realize this, but it was getting it was kind of hard for them to push entrepreneurs necessarily to all care about it, right? So. Did what? you figure it would kind of filter down into their portfolio companies? Yep, exactly. And so we felt that investors liked it because they got better they got better numbers yeah. for them to evaluate the businesses. And we liked it because it forced the founders and the businesses in the world to track better things and then buy Mixpanel or use Mixpanel for that. And so by convincing these two parties, we're able to get a huge portion of Silicon Valley to get to the point where they go, yeah, no one, no one in Silicon Valley, no one here is talking about how many pages they do right. or how many registered users they have anymore, or how many downloads they're really doing. Nobody cares. And you really led that charge. Um, I don't I think that that there are people that that led that charge at first. And then we were able we were like, we're a company. And yeah. We're going to help like really, really hard push that that uh, that idea. That's incredible. It's, it's, it's hard for me to remember at this point, like when people really like relied solely on page views or just you know registered users that seems yeah it's 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 incredible how how far along the you know the valley at the very least has come you know i came from publishing where you know for a long time the only thing people ever tracked was was page views and now i think you probably they probably have much more like rich data right there was there was this weird adversity too from journalists because it was some it was the the biggest contention was that the journalists generally measured themselves on page views yeah right and so they were like well what do i track then yeah that was this like hard question of well what should we track because we track page views and so we had to kind of come up with clever ways to say well you care about quality of your content right you care about whether people are reading what you're writing so maybe what matters is whether people are reading it so maybe one way that you can measure it time on page time or on page or how far does someone get in your article right things like that like we do that at mixpanel on our blog how far after five seconds does someone get on their blog do they read it um so we start to we had to really convince even the reporters who are used to that idea and that metric yeah no it's i'm sure that there was like sort of an uncomfort uncomfortable moment there mm -hmm. for them as well mm -hmm. um so what Right after YC, you raised a round of funding in 2009. Yes. And so, you know, during this is during, you know, the great, you know, recession, the economic downturn. What were those initial conversations with investors like? 
very bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was bad for two reasons. One was the recession really was full underway, you know, so, you know, we, we raised money about, we were raising money about six months after the recession. Mm-hmm. So things were particularly ba- were bad. And I remember, I remember when we first joined y-, y Combinator, I remember Paul and Jessica were sitting and we had just joined Y Combinator. It was like the first meeting. And I just remember Jessica saying something along the lines of, so investors are still investing. And it, that was just, I look back at that moment and that was supposed to be very, this like very positive moment. But when you like compare that to even just last year, you'd never expect anyone to be like, to have to reaffirm you that right, investors right. are still investing. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, okay, good. They're still investing. Um, but it was bad because uh, two reasons. One was that. And then two, the second reason was that Tim and I were sort of, we were very much nobodies. Mm-hmm. We weren't your classical cliche, MIT. Like Google, ex-Google. ex-Google, um, PM that was like about to go start a company and had this track record at least. Maybe had raised money previously. Maybe had an exit under our belt. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite. It was like we were, we came from Arizona State, which is not as prestigious as MIT or anything like that. You were we, 20 years old. We were 20 years old. We had no prior experience. For me and Tim, it was really our first working experience. When I don't think an internship really counts. Yeah, no. Um, so it was our first job. Yeah. Uh, and so that was really hard. And we met 11 or 12 VCs. Um, two of them wanted to give us a CEO right off the first meeting, like literally saying. They were like, you guys are fine, but we need to put in. A- yeah, 40 yeah. units into the meeting, they go. All right. So we, th- I think we need to find you guys a CEO. And Tim and I are looking at each other like, who's CEO? Who's being replaced as the CEO? It was like somewhat unclear at this point. Um, people were dragging their heels. Um, so it, it, it was particularly bad. And there was this point where we were about one week away from death. We weren't really sure. We were going to be able to raise any money. And we only had like 15K from Y Combinator at that point. We were really cheap. We had, I think we saved about 50% of that. Within, we saved, we, I think we only spent 50% of 15K over nine months. Wow. Um, so we were really, you really. Were very lean. Well, we were trying to be cockroaches. Yeah. That's what Paul wanted us to be. So we were super lean. And, um, and so we were one week away from death and Max kind of came in and at the last minute, we were able to get money from Max and Michael Birch, and we raised half a million dollars. If you're just joining us, I'm Kat Manialik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with Suhail Doshi, the CEO and co-founder of the data analytics startup Mixpanel. We're talking a little bit about their first experience raising money in 2009 during the Great Recession when you know there was a lot of uh, difficulty for early stage companies to raise funds. Um, and so... You know, so you were saying you were about a week away from death. Yeah. Um, you know, you were about to run out of money, though you'd, you'd only spent half of 15K over the course of nine months, which is incredible. And I want to kind of ask you how you did that. Um, <laughs> and a week away from death, Max Levgen comes in and, you know, invests. Um, can, you know, I, I want to talk about this a little bit because I think a lot of early stage companies that are going to be raising money in the next year or two are going to face some similar challenges um, with fundraising. It's going to be a little bit harder to get that early stage capital. Um, so what did you do? Were there specific things you did to, to stay really lean, to keep the burn low in that first year? Yes. Well, one thing to consider is that Tim and I are 20, so our relative experience 
of living luxuriously was living in a dorm room in college. Right. So, so you were living in an apartment and that was that was better. Considerably more luxurious. Yeah, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we did a couple things. One was we had a, a crappy apartment at this place called Shoreline of Shoreline Village in Mountain View. Being in Mountain View was cheaper than being in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's one way to be leaner. We had a one-bedroom apartment, not a two-bedroom apartment, which I don't recommend. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend because you might you that might create unnecessary tension with you and your founder. But we had a one-bedroom apartment where you know Tim had a futon on the left and I had an air bed from Walmart on the right. And we had a lamp in the middle and we had picnic ta- picnic utility tables in the living room. Um, we had a $200 a month grocery budget per month each. And so we ride our bikes to Safeway and put groceries on the handlebars and restart the servers from our Android phones if they were down and we'd bike back. Um, and uh, my mom, I think at the time, she she was a financial analyst. She was a finance person by trade. And so she kind of helped us with our finances a little bit, mm-hmm. making sure that we were burning very little money. We leveraged all the partnerships that we could that Y Combinator gave us. So for example, Rackspace had this partnership back in the day with Y Combinator where we basically were not paying any money for servers. So leverage that as much as you can because that ended up being our one of our biggest cost centers early on servers because we're an analytics right. company. So leverage all the free stuff that you can get um, because all these people want to partner with uh, people like Y Combinator and um, and just don't spend a lot of money. Yeah. You know, be be very smart about every dollar that you think about, you know, make sure that it, it's counting and then use your time as wisely as possible because you don't know every day counts for you to be able to get the kind of traction that you need to be able to raise money. And then, well, that's how you save money. So Not how you raise money. <laughs> right. And so maybe moving into that, how, what kind of advice would you give to people who are going to be trying to raise money this year? If, if they've, you know, kind of faced similar roadblocks um, to the ones you faced. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, you know, when you go out and you raise money and then you announce how much money you raise or if you decide to announce what your evaluation was, a lot of people think that that is this very overnight thing that was easy, very simple. Mm-hmm. But actually raising money was never easy for Mixpanel. It's always been hard. It's always been, we never had one of those oversubscribed, hyper-competitive rounds that you sometimes read about um, in TechCrunch. And a lot of times the companies that have those end up, you know, going nowhere. So it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily an indicator that you will succeed and be the biggest company of all time, even if you right. just have supposedly this easy oversubscribed Yeah, and it was background. very, raising money was very confusing for us because we were making money, we had a growth rate, but people really didn't like B2B at that time. People hated an analytics company. Um, and there's no way that they really believed in these two 20-year-old, you know, well, I guess we were 21 at that point. Um, these two really young founders from Arizona State that had never built a company before. Are, is there anything you specifically had to say uh, to investors to get them to to convince them like this, you know, anal- unsexy, you know, sort of B2B analytics company is is going to work, is going to make it? Well, I know, I'm not sure that I ever found that thing that you say. Yeah. But what I did find was that that the peop- the investors that you talk to, it sometimes comes down to traction like if you have unbelievable traction mm-hmm. all things are forgiven right you know, if you're pinterest, no one can argue with numbers. i remember when pinterest was raising its round and i knew a few people that were close to that round and all kinds of growth were forget you know all kinds of sins were forgiven if you have amazing growth but even if you have good growth you still have to fight and you still have to be very persistent so my my greatest piece of advice is usually just 
you have to be really persistent. You have to not, you have to be okay with rejection. You have to not get demoralized. And you have to recognize that you might talk to 50, 15 people. I remember talking to Max when we were having a hard time and he was like at PayPal, they were talking to like 50 people. Yeah. And I couldn't even imagine talking to 50 people because I already felt burnt out talking to 15. And so the biggest thing that I had realized was that it ended up being, you don't, when you raise money, you don't need everybody to say yes. Right. You need one person to say yes. And usually what that what matters to people is whether they're interested. It's as simple as that. It doesn't even sometimes come down to how much money you want, how much money you want to raise. And and sometimes it doesn't even matter what your background is or how much traction you have. Sometimes it just comes down to do they care about your idea? Do they think your idea is interesting? Because they know as investors that they're going to be spending time with you, spending time with you on your company. Right. And if they're not interested, I mean, Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Imagine you were talking to a founder who was building like, I don't know, janitorial services as a service. Yeah. That not, may not be the most interesting startup to you. You might go, I don't know that I want to like learn a whole lot about that business. How did you find those people that you thought would be really interested, that you could really engage with? Well, it's somewhat odd because we started targeting investors at first, you know, after our, our seed round, um, we started targeting investors that we thought were, that were interested in Alex, that wrote blog posts that exemplified things that we cared about. But the odd thing was we got rejected from them. Yeah. And so that was kind of like a big block. We were saying, well, that's really odd. And so, um, you know, when we raised money from Max, the thing that Max was really interested in was he was really interested in, he he brought analytics to slide. I mean, obviously he mm -hmm. hired like, he was spending a million dollars probably on analytics. So he was very interested in that for his own company. And then secondly, Max was very into quantifying data and if you look at the, the set of companies that he's working on now, you can see that. Um, you can see that with Glow, you can, which is helping people get, um, having pe helping people get, uh, having a baby. Um, and they're very, quant they're very quantified. They're quantifying that to a really crazy level. And so Max was really interested in data. He was really interested in quantifying things. And so that was a very obvious, like very innate choice for him to go, I believe in this thing. Whereas if you talk to someone that was maybe very consumer based, Right. And didn't care a lot about data, care a lot about intuition and design and user experience and things like that. All very important things. Harder to convince them. You wouldn't be able to convince the people like that. That would be very hard because they don't get it. They don't get it. Yeah. They don't understand it. And if they don't understand, it's hard for them to understand where it's headed. So I wanted to talk about a little bit about uh, you were, you know, you've come a long way since you raised your first round. Um, and at that time you were maybe 21. Yep. And you're, you're you know, still you know, relatively young person to be running a B2B enterprise company. And so I wanted to think about like, I know in 2014, you you brought on, you know, a sales exec from New Relic. And so I wanted to think about what it's like uh, being a young founder and a young CEO. And how do you uh, attract and hire top talent? And how do you work with executives if, if often they're, you know, considerably perhaps older than you or have more experience? Like this is, as you were saying, your first job. Right. Um, so how did you learn to go through that process of hiring. Yeah, so the, the hardest thing as a young founder is that you are still sort of waking up to the world. You are effectively maturing in your own mind. And you're definitely maturing at an accelerated rate mm -hmm. in, some, in some ways, in other ways you're not, but in many ways you are. Um, Tim and I generally think we're like about five years older than we actually are because of having to run a company. Um, you have to be very responsible. And so and so this can be tough for young founders because you are 
you're not immune to all the things that everyone else has to learn how to do from 20 to 30. Yeah. And, and you know, you can obviously, the intuition around this is you can kind of just think about like how you've, how you have personally changed from 20 to 30. Most people have changed a lot. So I think the biggest thing that you have to show people is that you may not hire the absolute top tier talent unless you have unbelievable, unprecedented uh, growth where all sins can be forgiven. Um, you, you might not be able to hire all of that top tier talent when you're 22 or 23. And so you kind of have to make do with what you have and you mm -hmm. have to kind of keep improving and upgrading from there constantly. But the, I think the biggest thing that you have to show people in the world is that you are a self-improving machine, that you're good at listening, you're good at recognizing mistakes that you make, you're good at recognizing that you have flaws and that you have to change. And I think all young founders have this problem. I think when you read about Steve Jobs in his very earliest days, I mean, there was this guy and he didn't wear shoes and he was a fruitarian. <laughs> <laughs> he smelled but refused to tell other people that he smelled. He refused to believe that he smelled. And then you think about Steve Jobs when he got older um, and how people describe him later. So two different, two, two different people. Same right. thing with Bill Gates. You know, people talked about the way Bill Gates ha ha conducted his meetings uh, back in the day and the way he conducts his meetings now is totally different. He would tell people that they were stupid, basically. There's this old Time article that I wrote. And so all I think all young founders go through this transition where they're learning that they have to relearn. They have to learn how to work with people. They have to learn um, really important social skills that they may not yet have, even if they're super extroverted and very social. And so you have to- How do you to, communicate that to, you know, say maybe your first employees or the first maybe executive kind of folks that you bring in? Yeah, well, your first person that you, you hire, I mean, you're gonna have to show them that in the interview process and you're gonna have to really build a strong relationship. So, you know, when we hired our head of sales, who's from New Relic, we, me and Matt talked a lot. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot and to get him comfortable. How long was that process? Just I think we maybe met like 20 or 30 times. Wow. Right. Over was, the course of we walked months? around. We walked around, you know, we walked around the block maybe 10 times. We met five times. We had to really get comfortable about our expectations together. And so what you might have to do is you might have to spend a lot of time with them. Mm -hmm. And you have to recognize that the reason why you do is because it's your job to kind of get them to be really comfortable. So, for example, I, I still do that now. Um, I still have to do that where I still meet people probably 10, 15 times just to make sure that they're comfortable, just to make sure our expectations set, just to show them a history of improvement over time. How, how big are you now? How many employees? Mixpanel is now 220 people. Right. So are you still very much involved in the hiring process? Yes. I don't, I don't interview every single person anymore. Um, but the most important thing you have to do when you go from zero to 220 is you start having to build a process by which you can ensure that the hiring bar is maintained from a time where you were interviewing everyone. So at Mixpanel, I made sure that I interviewed the first 100 people in the company because I felt that if I interviewed the first 100 people in the company, that that would set the tone. It'd be very hard for us to lower the bar. It'd be very hard to substantially change the culture. It'd be very hard to do things because those 100 people would be the core of the people that would keep our culture alive and it would be the people who would end up hiring you know other all people everybody and, else exactly yeah. and so, so that was really setting grueling. the tone of the interviews exactly yep. yeah and there's still interview questions that i had asked the first hundred i found out yesterday where we still ask people still ask a question that i used to ask oh wow to ensure that the quality bar is really high just for our own, even our own customer support teams
So we have just about a minute left. So one last question is, um, what advice would you give to someone starting out today? Yeah, um, I think the, the best piece of advice I'd have is that I didn't recognize how much my job and my role would change in the company when we first started. And to give you a sense of what, what I mean by this, and I think that most founders don't realize this, they don't recognize this yet, which is that you start out being the person that might write code mm -hmm. and you start writing and you're the kind of person that might be writing thousands of lines of code every single week. You're individually contributing a lot. It's very intense. You're touching everything. And you get to work as hard as you want. Yeah. Right. But as the company grows, your role changes and you go from being the person that was individually contributing to managing and going from managing to managing managers and from managing managers to managing executives and that your company is going to need a set of things systems, processes, policies. If you're thinking in your mind, yuck, that's why I started a company, you should recognize that those things are going to be things that you need along the way. And a lot of founders reject it when they're going from zero to 20 people. And you have to learn how to embrace those things over time. Suhail, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, please check out Mixpanel online at www.mixpanel.com. And you can follow Suhail on Twitter at Suhail. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Dana Cash, and associate producer and engineer, Dion Simkins. Be sure to tune in for another edition of our show next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'm Kat Manialik, and you've been listening to Startup School Radio.